All right. Hey, one of these times, I may just not come up, and they could just keep leading us in worship. That wouldn't be so terrible, would it? Amen. Well, good evening, church. I'm excited to be with you. Would you take your Bibles and join me in 1 John chapter 3? We're going to look at the first three verses, 1 John 3, 1 through 3. This is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible. I'm very excited about what we're going to look at here tonight. It's a topic very near and dear to my heart, and it's the topic of identity. Identity. I heard a story about a college student, bright young man, He was only about a semester away from graduating. He'd worked very, very hard. And uh, he had a a full semester ahead of him, uh, heavy workload in his field of study. The only thing that was keeping him from graduating, in addition to that, was a couple of electives. He just needed two elective classes. He needed something light. He needed something easy, a breeze, something with minimal study and work involved. And he was talking about this with a friend of his. His friend said, I'll tell you what you need to take. You need to take ornithology. He said, what? What's ornithology? He said, it's the study of birds. He said, well, that doesn't sound easy. He said, no, 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 you understand. (laughs) There's a really old professor in this class. He should have been retired years ago. He's gotten so soft, all you got to do is show up, you'll get a B for sure. He said, that sounds like the ticket. And he enthusiastically signed up for ornithology. Showed up on day one, and much to his chagrin, the old professor had died. And in his place was a brand new, young, hot shot professor fresh out of grad school who believed that the study of birds was the most important thing in the world. (laughs) And on day one, there was a reading assignment of over a hundred pages. By the second class, there was a pop quiz. And the semester just began to roll like this. Ridiculous assignment after ridiculous assignment. And this guy found himself really regretting that he'd signed up for ornithology. He was having to write a 15-page paper on the fundamental differences between the blue heron and the great North American egret. And he was just getting really worried about this class. He had some pride academically. He thought, no, I can, I can power through. I can make it work. But as the semester went on, it got harder and harder. And he started to worry. May, I might even fail this class. But by then, it was way too late to drop it. And so he knew he had to get an A on the final if he had any hope of passing this stupid class. He studied harder than he'd ever studied in his life. He learned more about birds than he ever thought possible. He showed up on the day of the final. He sat down at his desk. They passed out the exam. He looked at it, and he was crestfallen. He knew immediately there was no way he was going to pass this test. It required him to identify 400 different species of birds based on photos of those birds from the knees down. (laughs) He wadded that exam up, and in a fit of anger, he rose, he marched toward the professor's desk, he threw that wad of paper on his desk, he said, you're out of your mind, and I'm out of here. And he turned to go, the professor stood up, he said, wait a minute, young man, just who do you think you are? And with a laugh, the student whirled around, he said, ha ha, and he hiked his pant legs up above his knees, he said, you tell me. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think you are? 
Huh? I mean, think about that question. Who do you think you are? If I ask you that, what am I asking you to describe beyond your name? If I were to say, who is Donald Trump? Or who is Joe Biden? Now, you may have to reserve some of your personal opinions on those answers, all right? But probably your answer is going to include the fact that they are the 45th, 46th uh, presidents of the United States. If I said, who is Taylor Swift? Well, that's a recording artist, right? Most of us would say. Who is Michael Jordan? He's a basketball player. Probably the greatest basketball player who ever lived, amen? All right, eat your heart out, LeBron. Anyway... But what are we doing here? We are connecting with their identities what it is that they do. And that is a very natural thing that we all do. Whenever you meet somebody, you introduce yourself, what's usually the next question? So what do you do? What do you do? And we kind of link what keeps us busy, what we have accomplished with our identity. But is that the right way to think about identity? I mean, are we the definition of what it is that we do? Is that who makes us what we are? Did Michael Jordan cease to be a person when he walked off the court for the final time? He just vaporized into thin air? Or is there something more to a human being than what they do? And yet, our performance is often tied to our identity, and we're the ones who tie it to our identity, and that's a problem. If our performance is part of our identity, uh, we could end up in trouble. I mean, how many of you are always successful in what you do? How about five times out of 10? If that's the case, that means 50% of the time, you feel like a failure. I mean, even if you nail it 70% of the time, that means 30% of the time, you're just a big, fat zero. This is a problem. And, and there are many of us, and I would dare say in this room, who are disappointed in themselves. You're disappointed in life. You haven't attained that level of income that you thought you would at this point. You don't have that position at your job that you thought you would at this point. You haven't accomplished this goal, that goal. You haven't landed that mate, perhaps, that you thought you would at this stage of life. Many of you have dreams, ambitions, goals, maybe lifelong goals. They keep getting farther and farther away from you with each passing year. You wish you were better. You feel inadequate. You feel like a screw-up. Spiritually, I think we feed into this, even in Christian culture, because in church there is a, an endless stream of messages that say do better, be better, work harder, try harder, give God your best. Is that what God's looking for? Let me tell you something. In your notes... God doesn't want my best efforts. He wants me. He wants me. Because I've got news for you. Life doesn't always go the way you plan. Scripture says, a man plans his way, but the Lord orders his steps. Your plan means nothing if you stake your identity on that plan's implementation and success. Because also in your notes tonight, your identity is not based on success. Your success is an outgrowth of your identity. And that is what we're going to talk about. It is a brand new year. This is the first full week of 2023. What do you say, Lamb's Chapel, we approach this year differently than past years? What do you say individually that we think a little differently about this topic of identity and about life and about meaning? 
Most of us, I, I would guess, would sign a doctrinal statement that would say that we agree that it's by grace you are saved through faith, not of works. I, I think we'd agree on that. And yet, practically, the way that we live our lives runs counter to that. We actually live in a manner that, that to the observer, would indicate that we believe that we could earn favor by doing And so what if we stopped trying to please God by working harder? What if we stopped trying to avoid temptation by simply doing better? What if instead we started with this this issue of identity and we looked at that and we said, am I who others say I am? Am I who I say I am, or am I who God says I am? That's what we're gonna talk about tonight. Would you bow with me? Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing upon our reading of your word tonight. God, it's filled with powerful truths. And God, I pray that we would be inspired by it. I pray that we would be encouraged by it. I pray that we'd be changed by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Who am I? Who does Christ say that I am? Well, we're going to look at three key areas uh, that are answers to this question. First of all, in your notes, I am prized. I am prized. Let's go to the first verse in our passage and see what John says here. In verse 1, he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us. Now, John's attitude as he begins this passage can be described as an attitude of amazement. Some of you may have a King James version here. If you look at this passage with the KJV, it reads like this. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us! Exclamation point. And then the next sentence is that we should be called the sons of God! Exclamation point. You got two exclamatory sentences back to back as we open up this passage. He's saying, what kind of love is this? That, that, that I could be considered by God in this way, he is just he is just happy, ecstatic, overjoyed, stunned at the reality of this concept. It's almost like he's found out he's, he's been named the benefactor in someone's will, and he's been left this, this insurmountable, incredible fortune. He's done nothing to earn it. He's not by rights or by nature family in any sense, and it's just this unbelievable show of affection with no justification. How great is this? How great is this love, he goes on, that we should be called children of God. And so we are. So we are. I mean, what kind of worth do we have in the eyes of God? And it's funny, the world doesn't see that worth. The world looks at us and sees us as inferior based on their own standards. Why doesn't the world see this kind of worth in us? John explains the reason why. He goes on, he says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. It didn't know him. And this is the reason that you can't worry, Christian, about what the world thinks about you. You shouldn't give a hoot and a holler about what the world thinks about you because the world's standard for what is good is all out of whack. It's completely wrong. And he goes on in verse two, he says, beloved, we are God's children now. And that word beloved, if you got a physical Bible, I want you to underline it. 
Underline that word. Now, if you've got a King James or, or some other version, you might have a different phrase there. Instead of beloved, you might have dear friends. Now, that's nice. That is nowhere near as cool a word as beloved. All right? I think of Prince. Dearly beloved. <laughs> we gather here today to get through this thing called... I'm not going to get into that. Anyway, I'm going to start dancing up here if I do. Uh, you know what the word in Greek is? It's agape toy. Agape toy. Everybody say agape toy. All right, you know what it means? It means beloved. It means esteemed. It means dear. It means favorite. Favorite. It means worthy of love, valued above anything. Now, logically, he's referring, John, to a larger collective. There is a plurality of people who are called beloved. And this word agape toy, beloved, also means favorite. Now, how can you refer to multiple people as God's favorite? How? You see, your sub-point here is, I am his beloved. That's how you need to see yourself. I am his beloved. I am his agape toy. I am his favorite. Now, you look around, you see a lot of other people to whom that is addressed as well. They're his, how can that be? How can God love everybody like they're his favorite well, you and I can't do that. I'm incapable of that. God pulls that off. It's a supernatural act. Only God can do that. He loves somehow, he loves everyone as though they are his favorite. That is a perfect love. It's a perfect love. And relationships that we are uh, uh, involved in humanly throughout our life, they don't, they don't measure up to that. You ever been in love? Yeah, I hope you're in love right now. You know, growing up, I thought I was in love time and time and time again. Was I really in love? Probably not. Probably not. Because it wasn't, it wasn't like this at all. How do I know that I wasn't in love? Because a lot of the times in those relationships, there was fear. There was fear that I wouldn't measure up and that I might be rejected or that this person would stop caring for me for whatever reason. Okay, we experience that in our youth when we enter into different relationships. That's not a perfect love. When it has fear like that, you know why I know that? Because 1 John 4, 18 says there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, amen? For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. When you are loved by God, that is a perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear, we are his agape toy. We are his beloved. And then second in your notes, you could say, I am his child. That's the second subpoint under the fact that you are prized by God. I am his child. He says in verse two, beloved, we are God's, what? Children now. And the Greek word here is tekna. Tekna. It means offspring. It means children. You know, your birth sets your identity. What makes my children my children? It's the fact of their birth. And by the way, I've got all four of my children here this week. All four of them. My son, where is he? He's over here somewhere. There he is. This is my oldest son, my oldest child, Hayden, Micah, Graham. He's right here. He's a freshman at College of the Ozarks. And he's out to visit us this week. And we are, we are really happy to see him. He did not audition for this part. He was simply born. And that's what makes him my son, okay? Now, some of you out there, you wish you could have auditioned for the part. 
right? You, not, my, you, not, not, this, not my son's part. You wish your kids could have auditioned, right? You could have taken people auditioning. You'd love to be a casting uh, director for the role of your children, depending on how they behave, you know? No, but what makes someone the child of another is the fact of their birth. What makes you a child of God is the fact of your rebirth. Your rebirth. You needed a rebirth in order to become a child of God because apart from that new birth, you were not good enough. Your audition was faulty because you had a sin nature. And so the fact of your birth, as you were born into a, uh, a sinful state, God in his wisdom looked at you and said, a new birth is necessary. And so through the new birth, you become the agape toy of God. You become the techna of God and you are prized. And then the second major heading on your notes is that you are protected. I am protected. I am loved of the Father and I am protected. John goes on, he says, we are God's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And so you are protected from a couple of things here. And the first thing that you're protected from is you're protected in your notes from the wages of sin. You're protected from the wages of sin. What are the wages of sin? The wages of sin, are, that's death, right? Is what Romans tells us. But the gift of God is eternal life. Why is that? Because you have been made righteous. You are the righteousness of God. Everybody say, I am the righteousness of God. Why is that so hard for, to occur to us? Scripture tells us this. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Who is that? That's Jesus. So that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. What does that mean to be righteous? To be in a right relationship. See, apart from God, you're at odds with him. When you have not received his gift, you are the enemy of God. Did you know that? Jesus told the Pharisees, you're the children of the devil by nature. You're the enemy of an almighty God. In Christ, you become the righteousness of God. I am his righteousness. Uh, we become the righteous. What does that mean? It means that we've been declared something other than what we are. There is an important Christian doctrine. It's called the doctrine of justification. Justification. Uh, it un, it's unpacked and unfolded by Paul in the book of Romans. And it simply means that when you put your faith in Christ, he declares you righteous. Now, you're not fully righteous yet, but you have been declared righteous. It's as though God put a stamp on you that, that is a confirmation of a promise that he will ultimately make you fully righteous. It's as though you're already righteous. You've been declared righteous. You're justified, okay? Does it mean that you can no longer sin? Of course not. Everybody in this room can sin. I sin, you sin, you know it, I know it. But in the event of our sin, what recourse do we have? What hope do we have? John writes in the previous chapter from where we are now in, in chapter 2, verse 1, he says, My little children, technia, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
You are going to sin at some point because even though you are saved, even though you've been declared righteous, you still have a sin nature. It's just that in addition to that, you have something that you did not have before. You have the Holy Spirit. You have a new nature. So you've got the old nature, what we call the flesh, and you've got the new nature, the Holy Spirit, and you can live according to one or according to the other. And often we just kind of jump in between them like a monkey between trees. I call it the monkey anointing. All right, But in the event that you're in this tree, which God doesn't intend for you to be in, you have an advocate. Who is that advocate? It's the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. What is the Holy Spirit's job when we sin? Now, if I were to ask almost any given Christian that question, when you sin, what is the role of the Holy Spirit in that occasion, in the event that you sin, what does the Holy Spirit do? A lot of Christians would say that the job of the Holy Spirit toward the Christian when they sin is to convict them of that sin. Now, I'm going to stun some of you right now because you may have never heard this before. There was a time when I'd never heard it before. The role of the Holy Spirit is not to convict the believer of sin, okay? Now, some of you are like, whoa, 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 Pastor Scott, are you smoking beer? What's going on? <laughs> Listen to me. You are not going to find a scripture that indicates that the role of the Holy Spirit toward the Christian is to convict him or her of sin. You, you find it, you let me know. Not in there. All right? What does Jesus say when he tells the disciples about the impending arrival of the Holy Spirit in John's gospel? He's in the upper room. He tells them, and when he comes, who? The Holy Spirit. He will convict who? The world of sin. World, that, that word cosmos, world, without fail in scripture, always refers to the unbelieving. Does not refer to the righteous. It's always the unrighteous. And the job of the Holy Spirit is to convict the lost of sin. To what end? That they would repent and come to saving knowledge of Jesus. All right? Now, when you were lost, that happened. The Holy Spirit convicted you of your sin. And you got saved. Okay? And in that moment, the ministry of the Holy Spirit changed toward you. Once you were born again... He indwelled you, and his job was not to convict you of sin, but according to Christ, to convict you of your righteousness, okay? So a lot of this is gonna be semantics. We say, I was really convicted of that, you know, and we say that, we mean that, and what we mean to say is, I shouldn't have been sinning, and I'm aware of it, because the Holy Spirit is convicting me of my righteousness. He's saying, come over here, come this way. Come this way. You see, it's not a, you moron. That's not what it is. It's not slapping you on the hand. It's not punishment. Love is not associated with punishment. Fear is associated with punishment. Perfect love casts out fear. And so it's a gentle reminding of what? Of your identity. In Christ, this is who you are. This is who you are. So what is that feeling that we have when we do wrong? Where's that guilt and that shame coming from, if not the Holy Spirit? Where do you think? Scripture says we're condemned by our flesh. We have an enemy. We have an accuser. 
We have one who condemns us. It is Satan, all right? He condemns us. He stands in the heavenlies and accuses us as he did Job and others throughout scripture. It's all he does. He accuses us. He can't make you sin, but he can sure make you feel bad about it when you do. And you, you're familiar with the feeling. Oh, oh, you blew it. Mm. How could God love you? Wow, you filthy sinner. You know, you, you have a thought about something? Oh, you, <laughs> I can't believe that popped into your head. Well, you may as well go ahead and proceed and go full tilt with that inclination because <laughs> you've already disappointed God. You see? I, I had a friend named Josh. Josh is a former addict and he had a crazy life. Um, not only was he an addict, he was a dealer. Not only was a dealer, he was a coyote in California. You know what a coyote does? They bring people, they bring substances across the Mexican border into the States. It's a very dangerous pastime. He should have been dead by rights, by substance, or by violence. He went through multiple rehabs, about bankrupted his parents because of all the rehab stints that he went through. His habit, he spent their money, he trashed their house. Finally, he went through a Christian rehab clinic called uh, Teen Mania, or Teen Challenge, rather. And he got cleaned up, he got sober, he got saved. And not in that order. <laughs> he got saved first. God healed him. He was in a Bible study that I was leading. I was talking about this topic, how the role of the Holy Spirit toward the believer is to convict us of our righteousness. And he stopped me in mid-sentence. He goes, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you, are you telling me, are you telling me that when I'm lying in my bed at night and I'm racked with guilt about all the stuff that I've done, about the cravings that I still have, are you telling me that, 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 that when I feel so terrible about what I've done, about the people whose lives have been destroyed because of me, because my, you know, my habit and the fact that I almost broke my parents, are you telling me that all that shame, all that guilt, that's, that's not God laying that on me? I said, no, brother. I said, you're under the blood of Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. Past present, future. He loves you. He doesn't want you to sin, but he's calling you to your identity. And he began to weep. And it's like big old heavy chains just hit the floor. It made all the difference in his life to have this perspective. And today he's a youth pastor, full-time, making a huge difference, living forgiven, leading others to live forgiven. But the devil likes to berate us for our, our failure in the past, in the, in the recent present, okay? I heard a song, Christian song growing up, had a line in it. It was kind of a cheese ball song, but I will never forget this line and I'll pass it on to you. The next time the devil reminds you of your past, you just remind him of his future. Yeah. So you are protected 
from the wages of sin. Second, you're protected from the power of sin because we still have temptation, right? But do we have to fall to it? Not according to Galatians 5.16. Paul says, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So you've got this thing you didn't have before. Before it was a foregone conclusion. You were hardwired. You were gonna fail. You were gonna sin. You were gonna cave. Now you've got this new nature. You've got a power outside of yourself that has taken up residence within you. And you can rely on that. Now notice that verse in Galatians does not say, walk by the Spirit and you will no longer be bothered by the desires of the flesh. Well, that would be nice. But it's a reality, folks. You're going to be bothered by the desires of the flesh. You will be tempted in this life. By the way, is it a sin to be tempted? No. How do we know? Who else was tempted in Scripture? Christ, right? Did he sin? He did not. What was the point of him being led into the wilderness for 40 days to endure temptation. What was the point of that? Was it to show us it could be done? If we really try hard, we can resist temptation. It was at the point of the wilderness temptation of Christ. Uh-uh. You see, it was never a possibility that Jesus would sin. Not even a possibility. Some people really struggle with that. They like to think of it as a, as, a, as a war, you know, that he passed a test. Jesus is divine. He has all the attributes of the Godhead in bodily form. By his own admission, I can do nothing except that which the Father commands me. I can do nothing except what God commands. Was he ever going to sin? No. Now, he was fully man and fully God, and so it was, was there difficulty involved? Yes, but his character would not have permitted him to fail. It was a divine power that operated flawlessly. Okay? You and I don't have that power except through Christ. And so the purpose of the wilderness temptation was not to show us that through hard work we can resist temptation. No, it was to show us that only Jesus can resist temptation. And it's by that power that you will resist temptation. You gotta rely on him. It's the power of sin. You gotta know how weak you are. Not a one of you is strong enough to do this on your own. Not a one. I have a friend who's a pastor. He used to pastor a very, very large church. Every year he would have a prayer conference and uh, hundreds or up to a thousand pastors would attend. One year he invited a special guest. It was a, a, a pastor from Asia. He came in, small, humble man. This man's reputation was that his prayer life was incredible. He prayed for hours and hours upon end every single day. And so they invited this Asian pastor up onto the platform to great acclaim. People stood and applauded because of his, his commitment to prayer. It was well known. And the pastor of that church interviewed this man on the platform. And, and uh, everybody listened intently. He said, Pastor so-and-so, tell us, if you would, your prayer life is well known. Why do you feel it's so important to pray for such lengths each and every day? And this humble Asian pastor opened his mouth and everybody leaned in, waiting to hear something profound, 
some nugget of wisdom. And this man said, I pray so much because I hate my elders. He said, I hate them. They drive me crazy. And sometimes I want to strangle them with my bare hands, and so I need to pray so that I don't do that. And the whole place was like, huh? But he wasn't done. He went on. He said, also, there are many women in my church that I would like to have sex with. And uh, my wife is away a lot, and so I need to pray because I'm, I'm just so weak in my, in my flesh. I need the power of God on my life. Can you imagine? Now, I am not advocating that we stand up and air all of our dirty laundry out for the whole world, okay? But what if we were that honest with ourselves about our weakness and our need to rely on an almighty God who cannot fail. When you understand how weak you are, you have just become very dangerous to the devil. You've become so dangerous. For the devil, the scariest thing in the world is a Christian who recognizes where his or her power comes from. And so we gotta get that. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. How many of you need the power of Christ to rest on you? Amen. Amen. And then John goes on and he says, what we will be has not yet appeared. He's saying, we're we're frail, we're weak, (laughs) but not forever. Not forever. What we will be has not yet appeared yet. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. Let's tear that up a bit. I've already told you about justification. That means that you are declared righteous. Okay? You, there are three tenses to salvation. Justification is the past tense. You trusted Christ You were made righteous, okay? You were saved. You are justified. Then there is a process that follows that called sanctification. And this is the present tense of salvation. You are being made righteous, okay? You were declared righteous, now you are being made righteous. You were saved, you are being saved. What are you saved from? Well, here you were saved from the penalty of sin. Here you are saved from the power of sin, that ongoing temptation. Then one day, there's gonna be the future tense of salvation. We call that glorification. And that's when you will be made fully righteous because you will be transformed in the presence of Jesus Christ and you will be like him and you will see him as he is for you will be like him. Right now, you could not take his presence. You would be incinerated in his presence. But one day, you will have a glorified body. You will have no flesh. This bag of meat that you've been walking around your whole life, gone. You will be transformed, you will be glorious, and you will not contend with temptation or weakness or sin anymore. Looking forward to that? Come on. You're going to have a glorious body one day. When does that happen? In the future, at your judgment. Sometimes we go to funerals and people say, well, they've got their new body now. No, not not technically. Not yet. 
They're not suffering. They're with the Lord. They're not frail right now. They're in the spirit. Things are well with them, but they don't have their new glorious form yet because one day we all get it at the same time. We who have trusted Christ and you will not contend with sin any longer. And then the third thing in your notes is that I could say I am his presence. I am his presence in this world. John says in verse three, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. When you hope in Christ, you are being sanctified, you are being purified to what extent, in what likeness, the likeness of Christ as he himself is pure. You are to be a reflection. The whole point of sanctification is that you become a reasonable facsimile of Jesus Christ in this world. You are to be his likeness right here, right now. His hands, his feet. And let the spirit work through you that the world may see Jesus. You may be the only Jesus anybody ever sees in this world. Jesus said in Matthew 5, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Uh, it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Why does he call his followers the salt of the earth? What does salt do? It preserves, okay? It, it, it purifies. Uh, in centuries before refrigeration, they would take meat, they would pack it in salt. Why? So it wouldn't spoil. Folks, we are to be a societal preservative. Is there decay in our world? Absolutely. What, what helps to serve to slow that decay? One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit is the restraint of evil. You are indwelled by that spirit. And therefore God uses his people who are indwelled with the Holy Spirit to be a restrainer of evil in the world. Okay? And so if the church has nothing to do with restraining evil, we're falling down in an obligation that God has for. This is why we need to stand for morality. This is why we need to stand for true biblical justice. This is why we take a stand against the likes of abortion. This is why we stand up for children who are, who are being convinced that it's okay to transition to whatever gender you wanna be. It's wrong, it's harmful. It's destructive. The church needs to be resolute on these issues. The church needs to step in when there is injustice. The church needs to help the poor, the downtrodden. This is why we dig wells overseas to help people, to change conditions. It's a reality. Every abolitionist of note back in the 1800s in America was a person of devout Christian faith. The abolition of slavery would not have happened apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, began in England under a man named William Wilberforce. He fought and fought and fought for decades to end slavery in Great Britain, and it finally happened. And he did it out of his faith, his deep faith and commitment to the truth of, of God's word, that God cares about human life. We as the church, we need to stand against evils and atrocities like that. We need to stand against human trafficking, okay? About sexual slavery, we need, to, we need to stand for these things. We don't get to huddle in a corner and wait for Jesus to come back. We are the salt of the earth. And we're the light of the world. He goes on to say in Matthew, a city on a hill cannot be hidden. What does light do? It clarifies things. 
It makes the path evident. The light of Christ, it shines through our good works. And sometimes we get frustrated because the world can be pretty dark. And we, we think our light only goes so far because we can't tell. You see, we don't see that that light keeps going. A beam of light keeps going. Did you know that? It goes indefinitely. You might not with your human eyes be able to see how far that light goes, but it doesn't stop. And even when it hits something, it reflects off of that and it hits something else. The light that you shine as a Christian will outlive you and you need to understand that, embrace that, trust that. There was a missionary named Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson was the first American missionary. He went to the country of Burma. He was there for six years before he saw one convert. Would you get frustrated in that time? Would you maybe consider throwing in the towel? I think you might. I think I might have. And yet he pressed on. And when he'd arrived there, there was not one church in Burma. 30 years after the death of Adoniram Judson, <laughs> there were 63 churches and over 7,000 baptized believers. And his translation of the Bible into the Burmese language is today still the preferred version in that part of the world. What would have happened if he would have given up? Because... What would have happened if he had rooted his identity on success? The world's version of success. Six years, not one convert. See, he, he didn't see his identity that way. He didn't say, I'm a success because of this or that. He says, God loves me. God called me. I'm gonna trust God. And he did what God had called him to do. And God used this man. And if he had quit, if he had the wrong view of his identity, thousands would be in hell today. But the devil would have us believe otherwise, you see, because he is our accuser. He's the one who likes to berate us. He's the one who likes to ridicule us. He's the one who likes to lie to us. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. I want you to say, Satan is a liar. You believe that? Satan is a liar. Jesus is our advocate. He loves you. He prizes you. He protects you. You are his presence and you have to listen to him and not the world and not your inner doubts, not your humanness, not your ego. You listen not to lies, you listen to Christ. One of my favorite movies of recent years is a movie called The Help. Some of you have seen it, I could tell. I think the best line in that whole movie, other than somebody's had a little too much pie, is... We're not going to get into that. It's a character named Constantine. Uh, African-American woman played by the legendary Cicely Tyson. And, and in a flashback scene, she takes this young girl to her side, puts her arm around her. This girl's been going through some stuff with classmates at school. She feels belittled and bullied. And this wise old Lady Constantine says to this young girl, she says, every day you're not dead in the ground. When you wake up in the morning, you're going to have to make some decisions. 
got to ask yourself this question. Am I going to believe all them bad things them fools say about me today? Am I going to believe all them bad things them fools say about me today? Christian, you need to ask a similar question every morning. We know his mercies are new every morning. Somebody told me in the scriptures, there is some variation on the phrase, fear not, uh, roughly 365 times in the word of God. Hey, hey, how many days are there in a year? Oh, and in addition to claiming those mercies, those promises that we don't need to fear, we may throw in this question too. Am I going to believe all those lies that that old devil wants to throw at me today? Or am I going to believe my advocate, the lover of my soul, Jesus Christ? You believe it, I'll believe it, and 2023 is going to be a true success because of what we believe to be true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the truth and the hope and the glory of your word. I thank you for these hungry people who want to know your word. I pray that they would walk in the truth of what you have said is so. Every single day, help me to do it. We need to believe it because our behavior is dictated by what we believe. If we are who you say we are, our lives are gonna fall in line according to the riches of your glory, to the majesty of your personage, and to the wisdom of your will. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You are loved and highly favored. God bless you. Go in peace.